Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's not sending Sophie the script, my Robert? Uh, This is Behind the Bastards, a podcast about About anti-authoritarianism. And as an anti-authoritarian, I reject the the hierarchy of Sophie demanding my scripts before the episode. Here's my question. Power to the people. School's out for summer, motherfuckers. Okay, but here's my question. Here's my Uh question. (laughs) <laughs> would you have survived the last five years without Mm-mm. me <laughs> no that's not what it's about this is about principle sophie this is about you know a, a higher ethics um daniel i would appreciate it if you would put in a clip from the song schools out nobody for summer. no but no as the authority on this sophie uh, on come this, on no. no but no it's summer okay all right, all right. Just, we can I'm, have we can have one sound bite thank you thank you sophie uh, Did you all listen to that song every summer, like on the bus home? On the last I think I listened to it every year because there was always like some sort of TV special or whatever that was summer themed that always had it. Um, that's um, important. Yeah. yeah. Back to back to. Can I have the script, please? Uh, no, Sophie. But yes, because uh, I sent it. So, uh, <laughs> Margaret Killjoy, how 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 are we doing today? Good. Uh, I'm doing great. How do you uh how do you how do you feel about our nation's escalating war on the existence of people who don't have uh you know th- the money to stay indoors? Uh well, someone's got to I think I'm going to join that war but on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's it's pretty like dark times right now in terms of like right now we're kind of living through this uh 
this intense scapegoating period because the right has kind of gotten their their ducks in a row in in terms of how to like push insurgent uh uh camp like moral panic hatred campaigns um and they've launched a few mm-hmm. in a row uh and one of the ones that's really taken off in the last yeah, really the last two years has been this kind of escalating war against the houseless um and kind of on one side you've got this huge right-wing media ecosystem that like anytime there's like a, a homeless person who's set up near a, a fancy building somewhere in the west coast or anytime like some right-winger sees poop on the street or anytime there's there's like a broken window anywhere you get these like ho- like this whole fucking uh, uh, ecosystem of of shitty websites and sites like the Post being kind of the bigger ones, putting up these articles about how San Francisco is in chaos, or you know Portland is in chaos, yeah. or New York City is in chaos, um, and kind of as a result, and it's never because people have been kicked out of their houses. It's always because there's people who have yeah, been kicked out of their houses. It's not that like rent has doubled in like the last three or four years or anything like that, or that like a bunch of uh, the companies that. Make are responsible for making our food have seen record profits because they used stories about inflation as an excuse to jack up the cost of, of basic foodstuffs that made it untenable for a lot of people to like continue surviving in the same way that they had. Um, no, we don't blame any of that. We blame, you know, the folks who are need to live in a tent because that's the only thing they can afford. Um, and kind of a, a a surge of, of fun new laws has uh, come down the pipeline in the very recent, past this kind of like moral panic has has sort of metastasized this year into a sweeping wave of uh, of new laws to criminalize houselessness uh in missouri a yeah. state law recently took effect uh january 1st of this year that makes it a crime for any person to sleep on state property um this doesn't just mean like you can't crash <laughs> on the steps of the capitol building or whatever it means like if you're sleeping in a public park or under a highway you can face up to 750 dollars in fines and get up to 15 days in prison. Uh, The law went into effect right as Missouri cut funding for homeless services, making incarceration the best funded option for a lot of people living on the streets right now. Um, Last August, Los Angeles' city council banned homeless encampments within 500 feet of schools and daycares. This mirrored comments made two days before we recorded this episode by San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria uh, alongside a video that was just like these dramatic shots of homeless camps and like parents walking their kids to school and looking frightened uh, he made this post yeah. quote the encampments make it hard for kids walking to school they are forced into the street to get around them plus they're seeing things kids should never see um now <laughs> yeah definitely it's bad for kids to realize that like our addiction to capitalism has human consequences um we should be mm-hmm. we should be putting those people in fucking camps where where children won't have to realize that perhaps uh uh there are injustices in the system they live under um and none of those people in those camps are children so it's not a problem it it is um james actually just before uh uh we started recording this sent me a link to uh an article by um or sent me a link to a post from the uh, from alliance san diego um which is a, a community organization 
um, organized around kind of building collective power in San Diego and is uh, trying to fight back against this criminalization of homelessness that the mayor is pushing for. Um, and they had an interview with uh, a woman named Zulema who is homeless alongside her six-year-old son. And she's like, this means that my six-year-old son won't be able to like, we won't be able to sleep near the school that he goes to. Um, it's cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is all very anti-human and fucked up. Um, and there's a shitload of bastardry um, in yeah. all of this. I mean, Todd, um, Todd Gloria is a motherfucker, but there's Todd many, Gloria is a piece of shit. There's yeah. many Todd Glorias that that yeah yeah Todd's Gloria. I think like, Sophie is the like proper fully plural. fuck Mayor yeah. Todd Gloria, but yeah uh, yeah. Also. There's that wonderful thing where the 13th Amendment that abolished oh, slavery yeah. has that clause guess what, that says in case... Guess where we're heading, Margaret. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, uh, so oh, yeah, okay. I should talk about what this episode's actually about, because I'm not just complaining. Yeah, I have this no idea. This will not mostly be me <laughs> kvetching about uh, these modern laws. This is kind of explaining the surprisingly deep and, and surprising origins of our of our war on, uh, on what have been most commonly called vagrants. And we will be using that term because that's the legal mm-hmm. term that's often used. I don't think being a vagrant's a bad thing. Very pro-vagrant, but um, you know, it's it, it it is the legal term that for most of our nation's history and for most of like Western modern Western history has been used for people who like don't have a home in the traditional sense of the word. Um, I've been a vagrant a little bit mm-hmm. when I was younger, and then my grandfather was a hobo in World War Two, or not World War Two in the Great Depression. Yeah. You know, rode freight trains around looking for work. Oh, oh that's proud the proud line of yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's interesting when you kind of bring up the Great Depression generation because, like that 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 generation gets lionized so much, particularly by conservatives, and like yeah, a, most many, if not most, of like those people had a, a hobo period. My grandpa, when he was seventeen, yeah. his dad was like, "We can't feed you anymore, Garland," and gave him like a pocket full of cornbread, <laughs> yeah. and he just like hiked two or three states down to Oklahoma where he found work, but like. Yeah. how is that not being a hobo <laughs> like right like he he figured yeah. his shit out and good for him but like it's it's i don't see a, yeah. a big difference between that and people who are like yeah i couldn't make rent you know i work a job most homeless people work a job um like this is yeah. just what's open i to mean me, you know my granddad was my granddad was like greatest generation he went from being a hobo to yeah. being a torpedo man mm-hmm. in the, the south pacific and fighting in the one war that the u.s can say well that was good that we did that yeah and it, it's a it's this is because <laughs> i i didn't include as much of the australia context but like australia has a long history of anti-vagrancy laws but also like one of their proudest mm-hmm. songs about like world war one waltzing matilda is about a guy who was like yeah i used to just kind of wander around without like like you know a backpack and shit and yeah then I went and got my legs blown off yeah. by the Turks at Gallipoli. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, homelessness. The this is this is a story kind of about um, our, our Western civilization's war on people who yeah don't uh, fall through the cracks really. And it didn't start that way. This yeah. episode started because there's a band that uh, I listened to a lot when I was younger called State Radio, and they've got a song called "The Story mm-hmm. of Benjamin Darling Part One." Um, and it's it's based on the story of the it's based on the 
largely apocryphal details about the life of a very real guy. Um, he's a uh, was a freed slave who established an island community for mixed race people off the coast of Maine. Um, and I, I wanted to tell that story because there's a lot of bastardry and like why the community stopped existing. Um, and so I thought mm-hmm. just kind of based on my surface level knowledge of the story before I started digging in, I thought, okay, this is going to be like a story about like a bunch of racists from cities and towns in Maine, you know, just going after these, these people people who were kind of like living off grid doing their own thing. But the more I dug into the story, the more I found out that the evil in the story of like what happened to Benjamin Darling's descendants is a story about vagrancy and a story about the way our culture prosecutes these people. So let's get into it, because I think this is going to go some places you may not uh, anticipate. The concept of vagrancy was established in the West in the early modern period, kind of the end of the medieval, early modern period. Um, During most of the medieval era, most poor people in kind of Western European countries were some kind of like peasant or serf. And in in, in England, like serfdom is kind of more of an Eastern thing. But in England and a lot of Western Mm -hmm. Europe, there was the status called villainage. And it's not villain spelled the way we spell it. It's V-I-L-L-E. E-I-N. Um, uh-huh. I don't know. Maybe there's, I should have checked to see if that was the root of our no, term villain, uh, but I'm a hack and a fraud. But a villain, uh, will, like in the medieval context, was a, a kind of serf, basically. They're a person who's bound to a parcel of land and got to occupy it and farm it in return for laboring for his liege lord, usually working in the lord's fields, although I'm sure there were other options. Um, and thus, in the countryside, uh, for most of kind of this medieval period, anything approaching homelessness on a large Large scale was usually uncommon. You would have some people who were, you know, kind of roving between. Some of them would be like entertainers. Some of them would be, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, merchants. Some of them would be kind of folks in a more desperate state. But there, there usually weren't like huge numbers of folks like that because it was kind of part of the system. Was like people generally had like a place they were supposed to be, um, and yeah, it was kind of it, when you sort of got large numbers of people who were, you know, didn't have a set place to occupy to live it was generally because like a war or something had swept through the land right and you'd have had like a bunch of villages burnt down and and people uprooted Um, but the growth of cities kind of as the medieval period uh, sort of seeds to early modernity the sort of growth of cities leads to larger and larger numbers of people who have no real means of support Um, a lot of this was the result of the increasing enclosure of common lands which forced people out of their rural lifestyles that's where they're used to just kind of be land that was everyone's so you could graze your sheep on yeah. it you could grow stuff on it you know it, uh, and over time like lord that started becoming the property of like generally members of the nobility um and so it was fenced off uh and separated from the people who had been using it which made them unable to live the way that they had lived and forced them generally into cities um cities are rancid pits of disease in this period so a lot of times people <laughs> would die and they'd leave their kids or orphaned or like you know a woman who'd had like uh you know a husband who was supporting her would suddenly have no method of support and this led to a growing vagrant class and a lot of vagrants by the way were former soldiers right because in this period you go to war for the king or your duke or whatever and you lose an arm (laughs) good luck (laughs) sucks to be you yeah Yeah. you're not getting like you're not getting like a fucking disability payment right like there's not a va yeah you know there are some things that kind of fill that gap but not well yeah Generally. Yeah. Um, 
I looked up the etymology of, of villain and village, and they are the same. Excellent. Hot. Uh, and it comes from, and villain basically came from like a rustic. Oh, okay, cool. Gotcha. So, yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's the that's kind of the way people lived out, you know, in the countryside. So there was yeah. always kind of a degree of sympathy and acceptance of the need for sort of charity for like, you know, some guy who's lost his arms or some woman who's got like a family but no one to, to help raise them because, you know, hus- the husband died or whatever. There was some degree of sympathy for that. Um, but there was a great deal, and it kind of becomes this growing moral panic, particularly in England in like the 16, late 1500s, early 1600s, about people who were in physically good shape but didn't have any means of support. Uh, and the term term that started being used for them was sturdy beggars. Um, this is a kind of <laughs> slur, sturdy beggar. It's meant to imply uh-huh. both that a person uh-huh. is like healthy and can work and chooses not to. Um, and the, the common idea was that like these people are con men, right? If like you're able to work and you mm-hmm. don't have some sort of job, you're a con man. Um, and towns and cities started keeping lists of sturdy beggars and their supposed crimes. And if you are looking to make some D&D characters this weekend, these are these are pretty good. <laughs> play. So I'm just going to read one from the 1600s. But the 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 guy the guy's like crime was pretending to be insane and like following people until they gave him money to go away. And his his nickname his nickname was Tom O'Bedlam, um, which is fucking hell rad. yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. I do love Tom O'Bedlam. Um, fucking cool name, guys. <laughs> so. In 1547, furious British elites pushed through the first Vagrancy Act, which declared that any able-bodied person who lacked employment should be branded with a V. (laughs) So should be like branded (laughs) with a V and sold into slavery for two years. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. Um, There were no sort of like, there was no like separation between like, if this happens to like a dude in his 30s or like a six year old. Yeah. Uh, And in fact, child vagabonds were regularly forced into labor. It was thought to be good for them. Um, Laws. Yeah, teach him some life skills. Exactly. (laughs) And these kind of these laws spread from the UK to other parts of Western Europe or to parts of Western Europe. Um, Some of the laws are not it's not always like you get branded and sold into slavery laws in other places would demand that vagrants be whipped and then returned mm. to their birthplaces the idea was like well their people will like make them work right you know <laughs> <laughs> um throughout the 1600s <laughs> while kind of this 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 sort of war on vagrancy that's when it really starts kind of the late 1500s you get these very first laws and then the 1600s mm-hmm. it kind of it becomes the norm that it will be criminalized to be out and about in cities and towns without a visible means of support, right? Um, Now, while this is going on throughout the early 1600s, a couple of other big things are happening. One of those big things is the Atlantic slave trade, right? That's really really starting to cook in the 1600s. -hmm. Um, And another thing that's really starting to cook in the 1600s is the uh, British colonies in the New World, right? In in the northeast coast of North America. Um, And kind of while both of these things are happening, everyone has one of those like Reese's Pieces peanut butter cup moments uh, where they're like, what if we mix slavery and colonies together, governor? And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know that story, right? <laughs> like everybody's aware of kind of where that goes. Um, 
It didn't go well. I mean, no, it does not go well. Morally, no. morally, it did not go well. Yeah, m- morally, it's a fucking nightmare. Um, but uh, yeah, to for the ter- economic to- power of empire, it did good. Yeah, for the yeah, it does, you know, they make a lot of money off of it. So this yeah. that starts cooking, and you know, fast forward like 160, 170 years, something like that, um, and. You know, you start to get. I mean, I, I'm I'm flattening out a lot of things, but it, it takes a you know 160, mm-hmm. 170 years before kind of the the crusade for abolition, which had always existed. Is from as soon as like people were mm-hmm. doing the African slave trade, people were like, "That's bad." Um, but it really yeah. abolitionism starts to really pick up legal momentum, kind of 160, 170 years later in the in the late 1700s. Um, popular mm-hmm. summaries of the battle to abolish slavery tend to focus on the first electoral successes of state abolitionist movements, which started when slavery was made illegal by Massachusetts in 1783. Um, by the early 1800s, the legal Atlantic slave trade had been ended, although that did not mean that people stopped doing that sort of shit it just meant that like they could get in trouble right. for it um and yeah uh it's it's interesting to me that like kind of when we talk about at least when i think about my education on sort of the history of slavery and abolitionism it's sort of portrayed fairly quickly in this period sweeping over the north um and so there's this uh, very quickly we have our good guys and our bad guys right you've got the free states and the slave states and that all builds up to the civil war that yeah. cuts out the fairly long period in which slavery was real popular in New England. Um, And yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a mistake. And since our story involves slavery in New England today, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, So here's a quote from an article on slavery in Maine uh, in the Portland Press Herald. Quote, Slavery in New England looked much different than those large southern plantations. In New England, enslaved men, women, and children were owned by prominent and wealthy merchants, but also by families of less prominence who used slaves to do the manual labor they had once done themselves. Northern slave owners were more likely to own one or two slaves than hundreds. The enslaved people became Hmm. the foundation that moves those early household economies to a market economy because of the labor that the slave owner was previously was responsible for. Once he has the enslaved person, it frees him up to begin to build his own economic base, said author Patricia Wall, who researches and writes about slavery in Maine. While there weren't hundreds and thousands the way there were in the South, you can see that the enslaved people were at the base of the economy in these small communities in Maine and throughout New England. So a lot of what becomes kind of the upper class in these in these colonies, particularly these more rural areas, are families who start out with a couple of slaves to help them with like you know they're they're cooking food they're they're cleaning doing the laundry and yeah. stuff and that frees up the free people to like make money which generate you know in a lot of cases when you're looking at a place like Maine the people who have like nice houses and money now 200 years later it's because you know their ancestors enslaved somebody and it let them get a, a leg up no yeah. and that's so important for people to realize i hadn't known as much about new england slavery but that makes so much sense that basically like all of the aristocracy of yeah. the united states yeah comes from this yeah it's uh it's cool to look into the people who are doing stuff like funding the daily wire now and see where their uh uh their ancestors <laughs> what what they were getting up to Ah, oh, margaret this is yes. an awkward thing we recorded later for me to throw to ads because i forgot to do it when i was supposed to Yay! I love being good at my job. If only somebody was messaging you to do them. I never read messages, Sophie. I I just just vibes. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So, yeah, um, since Maine had no giant plantations, most enslaved people are used as personal servants or laborers in industries often like shipbuilding and fishing. Um, so the state... You know, this it, because Maine is part of the Massachusetts colony, right? So when Massachusetts, the new state, okay. uh, makes slavery illegal in 1783 or whatever, like that applies to Maine as well. You're not like supposed to be, you know, buying these oh, slaves okay. or bringing mm-hmm. them in and stuff. Um, but that does not mean that like after that point, Maine stops playing a role in the spread of slavery. For one thing, Maine has the second highest percentage of registered seamen in the United States um, and is a shipbuilding <laughs> hub. And there's a lot of stories in this period of like seamen from Maine uh, taking slaves <laughs> and like selling them in places like the Caribbean and like illegally doing like slave runs and stuff. Okay. Um, I'm proud of me for not laughing when I said seamen twice. You know, I feel like we should acknowledge yeah, I- that. I, I laughed. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I know. I'm not sorry. It's deeply disrespectful. Brave, brave so, with you, Robert. 
Yeah. All of this brings us to the life of a single... Which is sea people is the current... Yeah, that, that's... <laughs> that, 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 real, real new one. <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny when Magpie yeah. says it. It's mm-hmm, not funny mm-hmm. when you make that joke. It's, it's all about delivery. <laughs> it's all about delivery. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all of this brings us to the life of a single enslaved black American in Maine in the late 1700s. Um, his name was Benjamin Darling, and we have no idea where or when he was born. He was probably somewhere in like his 20s, maybe 30s, by the start of the 1790s, but he might have been older. Um, okay. It is unlikely that he himself knew precisely when he was born. Um, there's a good chance he was born somewhere in Africa and was taken over to North America kind of during the latter stages of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, mm-hmm. He may have been born here and then separated from his family when he was sold as an adult or as at least like a teenager. We're, we, we simply don't know. Um, but while we lack details about his life, we do have archives of, you know, history of slavery in Massachusetts and Maine, which are filled with letters from slave traders that provide some grim context as to the kind of experience he might have had, especially if he was brought over from Africa. And I'm going to quote from one of these letters now. Sir, I received yours by Captain Morris with bills of lading for five Negroes and one hogshead of rum. One Negro woman, marked Y on the left breast, died in about three weeks after her arrival, in spite of medical aid which I procured. All the rest died at sea. I am sorry for your loss. It may have resulted in deficient clothing so early in the spring. Benjamin Bullard to Sir William Pepperell, June 25th, 1719. Which is maybe a decade or, or two so before this guy was born. Yeah, I hope it, they died pooping themselves to death um, pretty badly. But you see, yeah. like it's it's like it's pre- it was pretty. There's a, there's a decent chance, like almost a guarantee, one way or the other, this guy's got some pretty intense trauma uh, in his childhood or early life. Um, Now there's two kind of broad versions of the story of Benjamin Darling. One was that his mother smuggled him out of uh, slavery and into freedom. uh, And he just kind of Mm -hmm. entered life in Maine as a free man. Um, That is not the most common version of the story. Uh, The most, uh, you know, there are a couple that are like he escaped on his own too. You get that. But the most widely told and enduring myth of Benjamin Darling who was a real dude, uh, is the one I'm going to relate to you right now. So whatever went on with this guy when he's, you know, a kid and a young man, by the start of the 1790s, he had been purchased by the captain of a small merchant vessel that ran the coast of New England up at least as far as Portland, probably hauling timber. The exact story of what happened is apocryphal, but the most common version of it is that one day, you know, this captain basically is this kind of, he's a small business owner. Um, He's somebody who has like a boat, probably not a huge one, doesn't really have the money for Mm -hmm. a large crew. Um, And in order to kind of like make his business more efficient, and as we've talked about, build his economic base up, this guy buys Benjamin, right? And, and, you know, they're, they're running the coast of New England together, um, doing kind of like cargo loads. And one day, you know, they judge things wrong a storm comes in stronger and bigger than kind of they had anticipated and they're they kind of caught with their pants down this fierce gale overtakes the small ship buffeted by winds and waves the boat crashes into a brace of jagged rocks off the north main coast and the captain is flung into the frigid churning waters now 
Ben in this situation is a dude who has been like probably ripped away from his family one way or the other to work for this guy. Yeah. Like incredibly difficult backbreaking labor by on the sea. No, no reasonable person could have judged him for leaving that man to drown. Um, especially yeah. given the fact that like, I don't know, most people don't know how to swim. Even if you're on a boat in this period, like it's not <laughs> common to be good at swimming. And even if you are like, fuck, it, it doesn't matter how good you are at swimming, diving in to try to save someone who's drowning is a terribly dangerous thing for the best swimmers in the world. Like it's incredibly anyway. So for a lot of reasons, no one could have blamed Ben for just kind of like trying to get his own ass out of here, but he dives into the water after this man who like bought and like uses him as chattel pulls him out of the water and to shore saves his life. Um, the captain, uh, so the legend goes, mm-hmm. was basically just overcome with shame once she regained consciousness, realizes like, oh my God, I was like treating this person as yeah. like a, a fucking can opener uh, and they just saved my life, like for no reason other than the goodness in their heart. So he immediately frees Benjamin, um, and making okay, Benjamin okay. a freedman, uh, and disappears hereafter from the pages of history. Benjamin Darling does not disappear. He takes a job at a salt mill near Phippsburg, um, which is a ridiculously named town in Maine. Um, I I do <laughs> not like it. P H I P P S B U R G. I want to say Phillipsburg oh, uh-huh. every time I look at it. I may, I'm livid. Um, fuck you people. <laughs> fuck Phippsburg. Anyway, Benjamin lives in Phippsburg <laughs> and he takes a job at a salt mill. Um, and he develops a reputation very quickly as a reliable worker and a good citizen. And this may seem hard to believe given where the story goes, but from what I've read, it seems fair to say actually that like a free black man in rural Maine in this period was one of the better situations you could be as like a, a free black guy. For one thing, fear and hatred of indigenous yeah. Americans by white settlers was much more like the thing that white people were flipped out about in Maine in this period. So like a free black dude was seen as like, well, if he's like one of us, then it's it's us against these these dangerous, you know, natives, right? Um, yeah. It, there was, there was, this is like the historians I've read would be like, he might have faced kind of less discrimination in this particular period in Maine than you might expect. Um, yeah. And what we have, the actual like official documents from like that, that kind of got recorded in the local government about Ben um, are all really positive. He's described as a sturdy and industrious individual. Um, he marries a mm-hmm. white woman named Sarah Proverbs. Um, and one of the very few details we get about his life after this point is that he is mauled by a bear defending his neighbor's corn patch, um, which probably, Jesus. yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, which probably describes why local records uh, call him a man with many staunch friends, right? Like he's he's like yeah. a, he's like a solid he dude. Just saves people. Yeah, you can rely yeah. on Ben. He's got your back. Yeah. Um. So you know he, he and, lives up to his last name. Yeah. Yeah. He's a darling. Um. And so he marries Sarah Proverbs, giving her a much better last uh-huh. name. Like I cannot overstate what a glow up darling See? is over Proverbs. <laughs> I I feel you, but Proverbs is weird Mm -hmm. it is weird in a nice way i Mm -hmm. I mean if anyone listening to this whose last name is proverbs congratulations you seem like you are a character who exists to make mm -hmm. everything more interesting if i if i get a time machine margaret i'm going back to these people Mm -hmm. and i'm going to explain to them Mm -hmm. our modern concept of hyphenating names because darling proverbs (laughs) would be a pretty cool last name right yeah yeah (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> totally. So he's uh, he's he develops a lot of respect in his local community. Um, he seems to be like having a pretty good life. He gets married. He has kids. Uh, mis- you know, this is at the time a crime called miscegenation. Um, but also he's kind mm-hmm. of in rural Maine. So it may just have been a thing where like, people aren't really like flipping out about it right now so much. Um, although they could have, and they were in most of the United States. Um, that said, that may have been something that did cause him problems. Um, because in about 1794, when he and Sarah, uh, have two sons, he buys an Island, um, off the coast of Maine. So he's like, now, islands aren't that expensive back then, right? Like, now having an island yeah, means, so like, you're hella money. rich. Yeah. yeah. It's a big yeah. thing. Back then, it's like, oh, you want, like, a rock to die on? Like, it's like, do you have any <laughs> idea how hard these islands are to live on? <laughs> um, but, you know, th- that does probably also uh, insinuate that he was pretty thrifty and resourceful. I'm, I'm going to guess it wasn't, like, nothing. But anyway, mm-hmm. he buys this island, Horse Island. He probably saved the life of the person yeah, who was selling it. He just keeps saving like, people get, until he's given an island. Yeah. Um, so he gets this a mountain lion just jumps out of nowhere <laughs> fucking like, cold cocks it here's the deed to my lion yeah. <laughs> or uh, island I don't know why I said lion <laughs> um, oh know. you said mountain lion anyway whatever so he and Sarah and their sons move to this island horse island and kind of you know they have some more kids their kids get married to other people and they this community starts to build on horse island mostly of mixed race people um, right. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like, I, you do kind of get the feeling that like, well, maybe once they started to have kids, the white people in Phippsburg and stuff were a little bit less, uh, welcoming of Benjamin, um, either <laughs> that, or he was just smart enough to be like, you know, it's probably not going to be safe forever to hang out around all of these like white people who are not going to treat my kids. Well, yeah. we should just kind of do our own thing out in the sticks, you know? Yeah. Either way, he kind of establishes this you might call it like a mixed race commune kind of, you know, I don't think there's like yeah. a, like a lot of, you know, it's not like a political thing, but it's like, that's a, the way it works, right? Like when you've got people living off grid in a place like these islands off the main coast, which are desperately hard places to survive. We are not talking fertile soil. We are not talking a yeah. shitload of stuff that you can like, um, um, you know, pick out of the ground or whatever uh, to live off of. You're you're pulling stuff out of the sea, and you're you are you are working your ass off to like make that place habitable. Um, that yeah. said, um, you know, when he moves to Horse Island, part of what drew him there may have been the fact that he had you know lived in the area for a while, and he had heard plenty of stories about the folks who lived out in those islands off the off the the coast of Maine. Um, and kind of in this period of time, these islands because there's there's hundreds of them had come. To to be inhabited by this kind of growing population of people who were considered who were either considered undesirable by mainstream society back on land or who themselves considered Mm -hmm. settled society back on land undesirable Um, a good number of them were what you'd call were what was called maroons uh, and these were formerly enslaved Africans who had freed themselves right Um, who had gotten away but like that's not a safe legal position to be in and they figure if I'm hanging out in this fucking island off the coast of Maine people anyone trying to come and get me is probably going to die finding me right like it's hard out here yeah um one source I found uh, on the matter notes, quote, these early settlers maintained their ancestral languages and lived in caves to avoid detection, um, which is pretty dope. Uh, wow. Cool story. Yeah. yeah. 
It is uh, unlikely. Well, it's it's possible that Ben and his family kind of uh, lived this way, but you know they had been pretty integrated to some extent into kind of like mainstream American society for a while. Um, kind of however life, whatever life was like on Horse Island for this community they established, the relationship that he has with his wife and the existence of their kids is illegal in the state of Maine, um, as are the re- marriages that all of their kids are going to have later on because they're all mixed race. Uh, heedless of right. this, though, the darlings spread and multiply and start to kind of like seed into little communities all throughout these islands through the early to mid 1800s um, from Horse Island oh, and yeah. some of the areas in the mainland around Phippsburg down to Portland and his descendants it seems like are as you know thrifty and successful as their paterfamilias and right as the Civil War <laughs> starts to uh, uh, or sorry not right as the Civil War comes to an end uh, and kind of like the period where shit's starting to build in the US towards that I think it's 1847 um, two of Darling's granddaughters sell the family interest in Horse Island and and use it to buy all 41 acres of a nearby island, which they start calling Malaga um, for reasons okay. that aren't really known. We don't really know why they they called it that, but they start calling it Malaga I Island. Some, I wonder if it was like one of the other languages that people were speaking around there, you know? I, I don't know. Because you're Ma- saying that people were like speaking African languages there. Yeah, but like, Malaga is also a place in Spain. So it may, I, oh, I wonder. Yeah, what, okay. I kind of wonder if it's maybe like some you know some kid there you know as their kids he's got getting got bought them some books or something and they're like reading about other yeah. parts of the world and they're just like when they buy this island I've heard about this place called Malaga that's a pretty name let's call it that um, yeah I don't I don't really know no one does uh, it is it is a mystery today Malaga Island population zero uh, lies just a short span of water away from the Krabby Lobster Shack uh, on the mainland and directly across from the <laughs> Kennebec Kennel. Uh, but back in the late eight, so it's like, like today, if you look at it, it's not that far from stuff. Like, you know, you can kind mm-hmm. of like take a boat across in a few minutes and then you're back on the mainland where there's like city or towns and stuff. But back in the late 1800s. Yeah. Antique stores. I've been to I've been to the coast of Maine. It's yeah, antique yeah. stores. It's nothing but antique stores. Um, yeah. Back then, it is, I cannot exaggerate. This is like maybe the most isolated place in the United States are these islands off the coast of Maine. Like you are, you are out off the fucking grid, right? I mean, there's not a grid. Nobody has power, but like everyone's off grid, I guess. (laughs) But these guys are off, off grid, right? Like you are really kind of out, out in the wilds. Um, And as a result, the people who live in these islands are able to kind of develop communities separate from mainland culture and the rest of the world in a way that does not exist anymore. Uh, These little islands around Maine's central coast then are kind of settled over the late 1800s. You know, it started out as a lot of these maroon communities and people like Darling. Um, They get added to by these sort of ragged bands of loners, madmen, and people whose existence had been criminalized by the state. Um, Darling's granddaughters yeah. and this their place f- sounds like it rules. It does. It's if you're you're not going to stop thinking that. It sounds pretty fucking cool. Hell yeah. So D- Darling's granddaughters and their families establish an isolated free community on Malaga Island. And over time they're joined by a couple of dozen other refugees from mainstream. Do you get you get what I did there? Right. Yeah, no, I was trying to make this pun earlier, Maine, but yeah. I didn't have a good no. space to I, yeah. I, I wrote it into the yeah. script, Margaret, um, and I capitalized ah, the okay. M, so people would All know right. it wasn't just a good. misspelling if anyone caught a glimpse of my script. Proud of me. So... <laughs> 
the people who kind of join with the Darling's descendants on this island are a mix of there's some white folks uh, in there. There's some mm-hmm. uh, a number, obviously, of like freed black people. Uh, there's Native Americans uh, and there's mixed race residents. And these kind of these folks mm-hmm. all come from very different backgrounds, but they're united primarily in their desire to get away from the rest of the country and raise their children in peace. Uh, this is not an yeah. easy life, uh, as this write up from Soul of America dot com makes clear. Malaga Island was typical of many island communities of the eastern Casco Bay, which were seldom occupied by legal owners. Fishermen would store their gear in crudely constructed sheds or shacks and often remain on the islands as unchallenged squatters for generations. Having little contact with the mainland, these individuals were not counted in the census, seldom paid taxes, and rarely voted. Illness and even death were taken (laughs) care of at home, as was education. Most of the inhabitants of Malaga Island were direct descendants of Darling, including his sons Isaac and Benjamin both of whom married women of the island and raised a total of 14 children. Over time, other groups also inhabited the island, including Irish, Scottish, and Portuguese. Um, and again, this is a tough place. The soil shit, so you're not going to grow a lot of food. Yeah. You, can, you can raise some livestock, but they've got to be like, like goats and shit, really like hardy animals. And most of yeah. what they live on period, is going to be taken from the sea. This includes huge quantities of, like, shellfish, um, which is part of why we know what we do about them, because when they would shell, you know, the the stuff they were eating, they would toss the shells in these large middens in the community, and they would toss other stuff there, and that's a uh really good way to preserve certain things. So actually, like, a surprising amount gets preserved because of the nature of their diet. Um, One of the things that's preserved this way are ledgers and papers from a school that was established on the island. Uh, Linda Wyman of the Phippsburg Historical Society notes, the papers written by the students show their penmanship was perfect and their spelling was better than mine. It absolutely shows that kids were educated, not illiterate or so-called feeble-minded or any of those things. Um, They're going to be accused of being that quite later, but from everything we know, uh, not only did these people survive in this difficult place, but they put a premium on making sure their kids were educated, Um, which is pretty fucking dope. Uh, I think so something like 50 people live on Malaga at its height again 41 acres is not big especially considering not all of the land is yeah. land that you could like put a house on um, they survived yeah. in a mix of some people would build these small houses a lot of folks are basically like taking boats and shoving them up on land and then converting the boats into houses um, some of the houses yeah, like float and they can float them to other islands if they like decide to move which is pretty it's kind of yeah. it's kind of dope yeah. it's kind of cool yeah, yeah. Like basically, mine's gonna be on goat back. I'm just gonna get like six goats and then hell build yeah. a house. Yeah, yeah. On the goats, have a palanquin of goats. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Like if you're thinking about life in the 1850s, 1860s, rough for everybody compared to modern standards. This seems like yeah. one of the better places to live. <laughs> that's that's where that's kind of yeah. how I'm thinking about it right now. Um, the Portland Press Herald notes, quote, Malaga's people lived like so many others, eking out an existence, trapping lobsters, hooking cod, digging clams, or laboring at boarding houses and farms on the mainland. Um, and so, yeah, that's also an important point is these people are not totally isolated. A lot of them make money, at least a side income, sometimes seasonal, working for folks mm-hmm. on the mainland. One woman on the island we know was a laundress for a bunch of boarding houses in Phippsburg, so she would take their wash their laundry, handle, you know, a large volume of washing and then return it once it was dried. Mm-hmm. Um so for on a time on the mainland? Yeah, on the on the main no, very nice. Very <laughs> nice. We're getting yeah, getting away you. with a thank lot you. of that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know who else <laughs> likes ads, Sophie? You? The listeners? Uh, I was going to say the same Nobody. people who were largely responsible for the worst parts of this story. Anyway, uh, here's ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, <clears throat> yeah, uh, you know, for a time, life seems to have been as about as good for the denizens of Malaga as it could be, particularly for people who, like, weren't white as hell in the United States in this period of time. They were isolated yeah. and, in like, very poor, obviously, but they were pretty much completely free, right? In a way that very few people in all of history have ever been. Yeah. Yeah. 
So back on the mainland, uh, slavery reaches its peak in the United States, uh, and shortly thereafter, it's calamitous end. Freedom comes to black men and women in the United States, but it was not freedom as the Malagites knew it. Uh, in the occupied South, white men started, even before the end of the war, scheming for a way to maintain what they saw as the natural order. In 1862, Union troops took the city of Memphis. Um, quite understandably, freed black people started fleeing there, right? There was a lot of mm. areas where they had been kept in bondage near Memphis. If you could kind of escape and get through the Confederate lines, then you get to be a free person in Memphis, which sounds a lot better than not being a free person. <laughs> um, so it kind of was, for a while, Memphis is sort of this like southern Canada almost. You might see it that way, where it's like, if we can get huh. to fucking Memphis, then we're, you know, we're free. Um, by the yeah. war's end, the city's black population had gone from 3,000 to 20,000. So this is a pretty dramatic yeah. change. Um, but yeah. while that's great, um, you know who's not going to be happy about a demographic change like that? This isn't an advertiser pivot. The Bass Pro Shop yeah. Pyramid? Yeah. yeah, the Bass Pro Shop Pyramid owners, um, who yeah. I am blaming for all of what we're about to talk to. So I'm going to quote next okay. from an article in a website called Zocalo by Christopher Hager. Quote, the growth of Memphis's free black population meant that West Tennessee plantations were proportionally emptied to the dismay of cotton planters who needed laborers in their fields. Vagrancy laws provided a convenient solution to the labor shortage. Uh. Memphis blacks who could not prove gainful employment in the city were presumed guilty of vagrancy and subject to arrest and impressment into the agricultural labor force. They were brought back onto the plantations <laughs> and forced to sign labor Fuck. contracts. Yeah, it's pretty, Fuck. pretty fucked up and <laughs> terrible. Um, so vagrancy laws had come to the United States from like our whole legal system, right? We get it from England, you know, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And so yeah. during the colonial days, the British had, had kindly given us their anti-vagrancy laws. Now yeah. these had, for the, for the most part, these were not commonly enforced in most parts of the United States prior to the late 1800s. And when they were, it was mostly in the South against freed black people who had the bad luck to exist in slave states. Um, it, they, yeah. these laws were also enforced on the border between free and slave states and places like Pennsylvania, um, where such laws were used to maintain a sort form of racial hierarchy, even in an area in which black people were supposed to not be subject to slavery. But as the Civil yeah. War came to an end, white people across the political spectrum were faced with a terrible specter. Large numbers of black people with, as they saw it, nothing to do. And so the enforcement of vagrancy <laughs> laws against black Americans became one of the first political issues to unite Northern abolitionists and Southern plantation owners. Because when these laws are instituted and executed <laughs> in the North, it's going to be abolitionists who push them, right? In the South, oh, it's former God, Confederates uh -huh. who want to get black people back on the plantation. In the North, it's abolitionists. Um, they're a huge part of this. And it's it's interesting. Because they want people why? to work. Because they want people to work, right? That's, that's the short end of the story. Yeah. So... In the South, the use of law enforcement to cement racial violence should not surprise anybody. But the North was host to a dedicated population of what were called charity reformers. And most of them, including most of the, the, the kind of driving figures behind this movement, were people who had been dedicated radical abolitionists prior to the Civil War. And kind of, they become charity reformers afterwards. Part of why is that mm -hmm. the 1870s, right after the Civil War, the U.S. has its first really great depression, right? Um, 
almost like the, 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 I think 1875 is when it kind of hits its death, but this is like a calamitous economic collapse. And it's a partial yeah. consequence. One of the things that contributes to this is that like, you've got all these soldiers who had been, you know, paid by the government and now suddenly they're all demobilized yeah. and that causes some problems. Yeah. So one of the things that happens is there's a huge increase in starving people begging for money. And this really pisses off a large number of kind of like upper class liberals who had been, who were staunch yeah. abolitionists and, and many abolitionists. One of the th reasons why this is the case is that a significant chunk of the abolitionist movement hated slavery, not because they weren't racist, although they were generally less racist than, you know, the plantation owners, but because right. they saw slavery as violating the sacred contract between labor and its employer, right? That's That was yeah. like a big part of their issue with it, is that they believed that workers had a, a sacred right to choose, you know, where they were going to labor, but they didn't have a right to not choose to labor, right? <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's a big part of this to them. And I'm going to quote from a paper in the Journal of American History by A.D. Stanley. In the eyes of charity reformers, there was a clearly etched line of distinction between laboring for wages and begging. The wage laborer was an independent person, self-supporting, one who participated in the vast social exchange of the marketplace and obeyed its rules, the polar opposite of the slave. The beggar was a dependent person who neither bought nor sold but preyed on others. The wage earner abided by the obligations of contract. The beggar eluded them. Charity reformers derived their view of beggary from the best thought of the day, the teachings of classical economists and other liberal and scientific thinkers, composing a constituency of state and city officials, prominent industrialists and businessmen, intellectuals and moral reformers, most of whom had been abolitionists, they were heir to an intellectual tradition that dissociated relations of personal dependency from transactions based on voluntary contract. That indeed had been the ideological lesson of the Civil War and Emancipation, the basis for vindicating the free wage system. Now, I didn't oh, know that. God. I hate it. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Stanley points out that like two wage laborers who none of these wealthy liberals are talking to yeah. ever in their entire lives to wage laborers. This does not make sense because wage laborers know that like, yeah, man, sometimes there's no work. Yeah. Right. Sometimes the, you know, the factory is closed. Sometimes yeah. you can't make money and you like have to beg or your family's going to yeah. starve. That's like begging wage laborers don't see begging as separate from like them, they they be like, yeah. Sometimes you wind up like yeah, totally. needing charity because like shit's fucked. It's it's tough out there. Yeah. Um. But these liberals have all. Yeah. The, the, and then this like is we, part communities take care of each other. Yeah, yeah. That is not how these wealthy liberals think. These kind of intellectual leaders, because they've yeah. been building in their head this kind of uh, add this kind of like b belief system that is kind of going to become what we, you know, a lot, a lot of it's going to become like kind of the traditions of modern capitalism, but they're sort of building this belief system based yeah. on how they think the social order works between wage earners and, and, you know, the poor and, and the rich and all this stuff. Like they've, they've set up this kind of view of the world that they've made without talking to any of the people who like exist in the, in the uh, situations that they're trying to define. And it has, it, one of the things that it, it has kind of like laid out out in this belief system, which is also going to play a lot into the eugenics beliefs that are just around the corner, is that like uh -huh. beggars are fundamentally immoral, right? Um, it is it is an act yeah. of social evil to not have a means of visible support. Um, we get the like, hey, we talked about a little bit of the medieval stuff, but you have like the deserving poor concept, yes. right? And so there's this like very Protestant idea of like 
the deserving poor should get something, but most people are not deserving poor. Yeah. Um, and that that's when this is starting to really get cooked up. And there's this idea, like yeah. the, the kind of conclusion these people come to is that like giving money to beggars or is um is going to disincline people to work. So when you have deserving poor, the social aid they receive needs to be so painful to receive that no one but the yeah. deserving poor will seek it out, right? Um yeah, totally. Now, one of the things I find interesting is that in this period, when you've got these people talking about the dangers of like charity uh, or f- of social aid for folks that like don't have work, you have kind of two yeah. different boogeymen they cite. One is socialism, right? Which makes sense, you know, that yeah. they're that they're they're citing that. The other is monarchism, right? Because a lot of Americans in this period huh. believe that uh-huh. monarchies inherently create this like huge class of dependent people who are utterly dependent on the state. Um, and that's seen as anti-American. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so it's both monarchism and socialism, usually by like slightly different chunks of this movement that you see cited as like the nightmare <laughs> scenario, right? Um, yeah, interesting to me. I didn't know that either. Yeah. One of the things that really, um, just really quickly, the one of the things that really like, I read this book called Russia Through a Shot Glass about a hobo in Soviet Russia, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know about poverty in Soviet Russia, right? In the USSR. And yeah. there's this conversation with a beggar who's like, oh, I do this. I don't actually need to go beg. I mean, he kind of needs to, right? He doesn't have a job. But he's like, I go out and beg every day because I'm doing a social good. Because when people give me 20 bucks or whatever, they feel better. Like, <laughs> I am good for people. And and I've thought about that ever since. Like, ever since now that I'm employed, i when I give money directly to people who are asking for money, it's like, I feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. They are doing a social good by like helping people feel good about themselves. Anyway, yeah, it's, I, I, I think that there's a, yeah, the, 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 the like panhandling is a, a complicated historical topic. I do think yeah. there's a degree to which it's, it's uh, one of our, <laughs> one of our like dying communal art forms. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. The, um, I, I think a lot about the way homelessness works in the United States and how, how not inevitable it is that that be the way society like yeah. treats this sort of thing. Like just one of the kind totally. of more mem- memorable conversations I had, you know, when I was in Mosul, I was kind of bunking up with this civil defense unit, which is like they're guys who pull people out of like the wreckage of airstrikes and shit. Like their job every day mm-hmm. was to like go and and help people who had been injured in the bombings and fighting and stuff uh, from the previous day. And we're kind of yeah. like just chatting about life. I was living in Los Angeles, you know, at the time. And like they're asking me about L.A. because, you know, everybody knows about Hollywood, even if they don't know like much about the yeah. city. And I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, the good things and about the problems. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of like homelessness and they like kept questioning me about that and they were so upset with the idea of like people living on the street um where they were like well what about like their families like was it like doesn't anyone take them in don't they have like there was this like this is kind of like because iraq's got plenty of problems but like the the idea that like there would be large numbers of people just kind of completely abandoned by their families and community was like yeah. so alien to these guys who were like dealing with some really nasty aspects of their own uh, country, yeah. you know, on a daily basis. Um, but like, yeah, that was it was really just like the the kind of disbelief they had that like this could ha- that could happen on any kind of large scale um, that people would just like yeah. let it occur was was so interesting to me. Um, yeah. 
Anyway, so we had talked about a little earlier that uh, in the late or in the 1780s, Massachusetts is the first U.S. state to ban slavery, right? Um, that's something Massachusetts mm-hmm. can take great pride in. Massachusetts is also the first northern state to criminalize begging. In 1866, the Republican <laughs> legislature of Massachusetts passes the Act Concerning Vagrants and Vagabonds. A.D. Stanley writes, Massachusetts was the first of the northern states to enact new rules against beggars. In 1866, the Republican-dominated legislature passed an act concerning vagrants and bat- vagabonds. The 1860 criminal code had punished beggars along with a motley band of judges jugglers, tricksters, common pipers and fiddlers, pilferers, brawlers, and lewd persons. Uh, sounds like literally my friend All group. All the best people. Yeah, like everyone I hang out with yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, tricksters, yeah. jugglers, common Pick pipers, lewd persons. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the new law dealt more specifically on the crime of begging. It was promoted by the Board of State Charities, which explicitly called for additional legislation sentencing sturdy beggars to enforce labor. Directed (laughs) against idle persons without visible means Uh, of support, the act punished at forced labor for not longer than six months in a house of correction or workhouse. Quote, all persons wandering abroad and begging or who go out from door to door or place themselves in the streets, highways or passages or from other public places to beg or receive alms. One month before the new law took effect, Congress enacted a civil rights, the Civil Rights Act, uh, which ended the black codes in the South. These had been the legal basis for a lot of the vagrancy arrests of freed black people. So Republicans both spent the post-war years cutting down the legal apparatus for one means of suppression and forced labor and voting in a new one based around anti-vagrancy laws because these spread rapidly towards the northern states around uh, towards the northern states kind of outside of Massachusetts. Uh, Over the next 20 years, many states followed mass. Uh, The Tramp Acts, as they were often called, were passed in Pennsylvania in 1871, in Illinois in 1874, and in New York in 1880 and 1885. Massachusetts also regularly added new laws to their vagrancy laws. Every time the economy takes a dip, they'll make more laws to criminalize and force people who are like ruined by economic collapse uh, into the forced labor system, right? This is like a regular thing. Where they're constantly like, as the economy keeps going up and down, they're constantly like making new laws to put people in workhouses, you know, when they fall through the cracks. Uh, Under the Illinois vagabond law, begging was punishable with six months in the workhouse. In New York, beggars were given hard labor in prisons. States soon began extending the time of sentence from generally like six months or so at the start to as long as two years. And again, the organizing impulse behind all of these laws is the work of charity reformers. A.D. Stanley writes, Many of the statutes were the direct Mm -hmm. accomplishment of charity reformers. Among the central tasks the Conference of Charities assigned itself was showing how legislation ought to travel. As one member declared, suppression of vagrancy and street begging was probably the most important work of charity reform. Even before the Conference of Charities organized the effort, both public and private philanthropic agencies vigorously promoted laws against begging, all of which entailed forced labor. By 1866, New York City charity officials had concluded that the only only way to prevent sloth was compulsory labor. A few years later, a commissioner of the New York State Board of Charities recommended that the laws must be more stringent regarding vagabonds and professional beggars. In Illinois, charity, police, and prison officials all pressed in the mid-1870s for what one police chief called a good vagrant law. And both the Industrial Aid Society in Boston and the 
Association for Improving the Condition of the Poor in New York City, agencies with close ties to the Republican Party, promoted penal laws and involuntary labor as a cure for begging. And again, folks, I know, you know, we all we all hate Republicans around here. When we're talking about Republicans in this period, we're talking about liberals. That's who is yeah, doing basically is Democrats. Liberals, is yeah. Democrats, right? Like that's like yeah. let's be fair here. We are talking about like liberal intellectual yeah. and social elites um who are yeah. pushing these laws alongside the police who are always super supportive of criminalizing homelessness because these vagrant laws, here's a fun thing. We'll talk about this more at the end. The way they're written means that cops can just decide someone's a vagrant and then they get to do anything they want to them. That's cool. Yay. <laughs> Great. I hate Great this so stuff. much. Yeah, it's deeply infuriating, Margaret. Um, in former slave states, a good deal of the... Uh, you got some? <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about how... Okay, so like in my, my current life, I don't get harassed by police very much, but when I lived out of a backpack and hitchhiked, and to be clear... I chose that because of the yeah. way that I was choosing to do activism. I chose that riding freight trains and hitchhiking was a good way to do mm-hmm. activism, right? Just to be clear yeah. about that. But I interacted with police so, so much that like, like roughly daily, I would have my ID run. Mm-hmm. I never understood how people did crime. Like when I meet people who just sort of do drugs or like have drugs or move drugs around, I'm like, I don't understand. You get searched every day. And it's because of this vagrancy shit. It's because mm-hmm. of this, like, everyone, if you have a backpack, you are the enemy of the police. Like, mm-hmm. and just, you will be constantly harassed. And it, I, I don't think people quite understand the degree to which that harassment is just ever present. Even when you're not, and it, and it annoys the shit out of me because you have this, like, ostensible freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, but you don't. And then also capitalism presents itself as this system that you're like, well, if you don't like it, just don't do it. Right. Capitalism is all about choice and the freedom of the individual. It is not like if you don't work, if you choose not to work, if you ask other people for money or just choose to just eat trash instead of asking people for money, you are breaking the law. I, I hate this stuff so much. And it, <laughs> it's, 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 anyway. yeah. no, it's like, um, yeah, yeah I, <sighs> You know, I, I, I lived out of a car, again, by mm-hmm. choice, uh, with, yeah. with uh, two other people, you know, and it was kind of like an adventure. We were going up and down the, all throughout the, the, the U.S. and Canada. Um, I had like yeah. three notable interactions with police, and all of them were really negative and took like an hour or two to get through. Like, they tried to bring out dogs yeah. and shit. But that was all. It wasn't like a daily thing. It was because, like, we were in a car, yeah. right? And, like, while right. if they see that you're sleeping in a car, you get shit from the cops. If cops just see right. people in a car, they think, like, that is a that is the world happening as it's supposed to happen. A person in a backpack right. is not supposed to exist outside of a car or a school campus, you know? Like, right. it's, it's, it is interesting interesting the way that that works because we were like just as vagrant a city but it, like we were you know yeah, moving around totally. living out of the back of a toyota prius um yeah but <clears throat> you know if you don't look like they expect you know then you're you're generally okay yeah. um yep 
Cool stuff. So, uh, in former slave states, a great deal of the mm-hmm. actual punishment work of the vagrant law system was done by employees of the Freedmen's Bureau, which had been created in March 1865 with the stated goal of helping freedmen adapt to their newfound liberty. The first mm-hmm. superintendent of the Bureau, though, made it clear that his organization was about control as much as support. He stated his determination uh-huh. that, quote, freed people shall not become a worthless, lazy set of vagrants living in vice and idleness. His successor added that Memphis had 6,000 black people who were lazy, worthless vagrants. And so, in Memphis, the Freedmen's Bureau started organizing patrols to arrest black people at random and send them to work for white employers, often the same Uh plantations that had owned them or their relatives. Patrolmen were given bounties of $1 to $5 per head, right? And just told, like, get us people, you know? They they recreate slave patrols, like, they but but the Freedmen's Bureau's running them, and they're doing it to provide cheap labor for, you know, plantations and shit. Um, Oh, God, Uh uh-huh. this pisses off a lot of freed people. Um, they, you know, they don't take this lying down. Um, and those who could, for one thing, wrote letters to the the bureau commissioner. Obviously, in this period, literacy is not super widespread among the community of, of freed people yet for, for very obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. It had been illegal for them to learn to read and write in most yeah. of the places they came from. But there were always people in the community who had either who had taught themselves to read or who had, had benefited from some sort of education. And so they would organize in groups where, like, every Everyone would come and bring their complaints and like the people who could write would would write letters for everybody and then send them in. Right. Mm. In order to kind of do like they were they were organizing, you know, like in order to like exert a kind of political power. Right. The way that people do. Um, So for whatever reason, uh, and I I guess it, it does make sense. Most often, like the most common job for the people who would be like the letter writers in their community were barbers, right? This was a lot of the people doing this are barbers. Um, And one of these barbers is a guy named Warner Madison who had taught himself to read. Now, his prose is obviously it's not like as polished as the writing and say the government notices organizing vagrant patrols, but he got Mm -hmm. his point across. And even with this kind of distance, you can you can feel the rage that radiates off of his words burning like a fucking cinder. Uh, And I'm going to quote again from that article in Zocalo. In a letter to Freedmen's Bureau Commissioner Fisk, he began by describing what was going on. They go around and arrest all they can find, regardless of whether they are employed or not. Just ask if you don't want to go with Mr. Whoever it may be, that they don't find out whether you want to go or not at all. They make out the agreement to sell you for the price that the man gives them. Then Madison uh, narrated an instance of a young African-American man being taken away by the point of the bayonet at the direction of a Freedmen's Bureau agent. As his letter rose to a pitched fury, Madison began to punctuate almost every word as if stabbing at the paper with his pen. I think it is one of the most obnoxious and foul and mean things that exists on any part of this bureau. Why do my children have to get passes now to go to school? Nathan Dudley of the Freedmen's Bureau was sent to investigate these claims. Um, he looks into whether or not children are getting like arrested for vagrancy while they're heading to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's here's what he writes. I can find no evidence whatever that school children with books in their hands have been arrested, except in two or three cases. <laughs> First off, I can't find evidence that they got arrested if they had books. And second, I can't find any evidence except for this evidence. Other than these people, these yeah. kids who got arrested. I can't find any evidence of this happening. Very funny. Um, Not funny. Uh, Infuriating. But, you know, it happened. Um, 
so uh yeah that's frustrating um yeah yeah uh fair fair to say irritating um malaga we're thinking back to our friends on Malaga living mm-hmm. free of all of this bullshit uh, because they're very uh-huh. isolated, um, have a lot of protection from this wave of vagrancy laws sweeping the country. Um, so, you know, the 1870s, 1880s, this stuff, they're not really dealing with consequences of this because of how far off the grid they are. Um, but by the start of the 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, the unique communities that had formed both on Malaga and these surrounding islands um, were starting to gain the attention of mainland culture and a mainland culture that had been influenced by this anti-vagrant hysteria. We can illustrate Uh this well with the story of John Darling, a third generation descendant of our buddy Benjamin. He was born in 1850 to Isaac and Rebecca Wallace Darling in Phippsburg. His brother remained in the area, marrying and having children. Uh, At 21, John got married to his first cousin, Aurelia Darling, and she gave birth first to a set of stillborn twins and then a son dying soon after. At 29, John married a again to a woman named Albertina Gilliam from Orr's Island, and the family moved to Orr's Island to live with her parents. This was a good life for some years, but then in 1897, the land that his wife's family lived on was sold to a syndicate of Philadelphia businessmen who sold the land off for summer cottages. The Darlings were evicted, so they fled to Pond Island, a half mile to the south, and squatted on it, building a two-room house that John Darling insulated with newspaper, rags, and dirt, which is just kind of like what you did Mm -hmm. at the time, right? Right? You can't just pop down yeah. to the Home Depot. His wife eventually took sick and had to return to the mainland for treatment, while John passed into local legend living alone as the Hermit of Pond Island from a write-up by the Harpswell Historical Society. The hermit was featured on postcards and histories and as an example of what might happen to a child if they didn't work hard and learn those ABCs. <laughs> the story of finding John frozen solid in his bed of rags and eaten by everything from rats to seagulls has been told around many a campfire. So he becomes kind of this, like, people will, like, glimpse him or sail by to look at him, and he's, like, this kind of figure of local, like, mockery, right? Because he's he's living alone yeah. out there. Um Now, despite kind of this public image of him, John is, by all accounts, a resourceful and tough man who, like, lived alone in the most, like, and and made a life for himself, built a fucking house out there, and survived to an advanced age. He doesn't sound lazy. No, he's, he sounds like today, a man with the kind of skills that he have would go on one of those game shows like alone where you have to like live alone yeah. in the middle of nowhere with like a knife and, and win. Yeah. He would like win every time. Like no, no yeah. modern man could compete with John Darling on one of those shows. Yes. Like, yeah. Oh, I gotta be, I gotta not talk to anyone for 120. Fine. I, I, I do that yeah, without trying. Like, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so again, he, he's by all accounts, a pretty resourceful guy and he minds his own fucking business but as the 1900s were to life he represented to people on Maine and places like Phippsburg and Portland a provincial backwards past that they wanted to jettison because it made them feel embarrassed Mm -hmm. about themselves photos were taken of John and published in breathless news and magazine articles decrying his primitive state and the fact that he was a squatter John's physicality was particularly well suited to this sort of thing he was over six feet tall 
and at least 250 pounds, which again suggests he's pretty good at surviving out yeah. there if he's that big. <laughs> yeah. But they're like, look, he's, they basically treat him like an ogre, right? Like he's this like, mm-hmm. this like dangerous, uh, uh, like almost inhuman hobo living, you know, alone on this island. Um, yeah. There were rumors wow. in local reporting that he was illiterate and uncultured, although there's no actual evidence of this. The Harpswell Historical yeah. Society notes his signature has not been found on any town records or petitions and it is quite likely that he did not read or write but it may also be that he was just not a very sociable person and did not concern himself with the affairs of others or the town preferring to keep to himself and therefore did not sign or make his mark on the public record the treatment of john darling would be mirrored with greatly enhanced brutality against other descendants of benjamin darling on their kin and their kin on Malaga Island. Um, and that is the story we are going to talk about when we come back uh, in part two. But uh, Margaret, you know what time it is right now? Uh, it, no more ads. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's time Do to I advertise it's, myself? It's, yeah, it's time to yeah. plug, 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 plug your pluggables. Well, mm-hmm. if you like the opposite of this show, where we talk mm-hmm. about people who fought these things you might like my show cool people who did cool stuff available wherever podcasts are found specifically from cool zone media also i am uh i don't know whether i don't know this comes out i'm either kickstarting or have kickstarted a tabletop role-playing game called penumbra city that i'm making with a bunch of people i've been working on it for a very long time the kickstarter is doing amazingly we're at like 300 percent or something of our goal and so you should check out Penumbra City and or Cool People Did Cool Stuff. Excellent. And you can check out me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, you can also get this podcast and, uh, you know, presumably other podcasts, but I hate all other podcasts except for the one that we're mm-hmm. recording right now uh, and the other ones that we've recorded. Um, if you go to Apple and uh, Sophie, how do we, what am I supposed to, how do I say this? How do we do this? Go to Apple and buy Cooler Zone Media, give them money, and then you won't have ads on any of our shows, including Margaret's show, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, um, including Hood Politics uh, with our good friend Prop, including It Could Happen Here, the daily news show that is slowly destroying all of our sanities. Um, you know, you can, uh, you, can, you can get no more ads, not a single ad motherfuckers and hey here's what makes it better if you go on and and get an account with cooler zone media right now and get that fucking give us give us you know sign up for that then we'll go up the charts and we can we are we are right underneath radio lab and most subscribers on (laughs) apple and i have hated the radio lab people for years now no real reason that that seems logical to me you you have to pick an enemy uh and then destroy them with with almost unthinkable violence uh and that's that's what I want to do, do to those do Radio know, Lab motherfuckers. Do you know what else people can listen to now? And they can listen to done the ad free or the free version with ads? No, I don't know. Our dear friend Jake Hanrahan's newest podcast that is part of Cool Zone uh, Media. Jake Hanrahan or Janrahan, as he has never been called by anyone. Um, don't call him that. It'll make yeah, him but, angry. But you should you should check out his new show. It's called Sad Oligarch. It's a modern true crime mm-hmm. style investigative series yeah. that looks into uh, why these Russian oligarchs keep mm-hmm. just 
yeah. dying, falling All of down. these Russian o- o- oligarchs keep <laughs> su- like falling out of windows in hotels, surprisingly. Just um, downstairs. Just clumsy. And, yeah. yeah. Clumsy oligarchs. Ah, uh, the, the classic. So check that out, okay. you know, uh, and, you know, check it out ad free uh, and help us destroy Radiolab, you know. Please. <laughs> and we'll be back. That's with right. Part two. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.